0: Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva Ready. This is Stephen Robles and we have an awesome guest today. Christopher Yuan is going to be with us telling a story, his testimony and doing some Q&A. So we're looking forward to that. But before we get into it, I want to mention Impact 360. Seth and Nerva just came back from the two-week immersion camp. It's always an awesome time there. And so we encourage you, impact360.org. Again, it has those online courses we talk about, but enrollment is now open for their one- and two-week camps next summer. So summer 2020, they have Propel and Immersion, a one- and two-week camp for high school students, teaching them apologetics, worldview, truth. It's a great opportunity. So you can go online to impact360.org and register for those. Any uh, high school students you may have, if you're a youth pastor, your student ministry, impact360.org, and you can check those out there.
1: Yeah, as Stephen just said, we're excited to have our guest, Christopher Yuan. He's a Bible teacher at Moody Bible Institute, and he has a master's in biblical exegesis from Wheaton College. He also has a doctorate in ministry from Bethel Seminary. He's written a book with his mom called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God. A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. He's also written a book called Holy Sexuality that we're going to dig into here in a little bit. He's got a powerful story I cannot wait for him to share with you guys. But Christopher, would you mind telling our listeners um, your testimony, how you got to where you are and just your journey along the way to meeting God?
2: Yeah, I wasn't. So I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but I wrestled with my sexuality from a young age. I didn't come out until my early 20s, which is a bit later than average now today. I I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And so when I came out, you know, my parents didn't have any context to to kind of work through this or to understand it. Uh, They weren't Christian, but. Uh, through that crisis amazingly my mother came to faith and then eventually my father did well I went the opposite direction I thought they had lost their minds you know I was like good for you not for me you know I, I was not a Christian and so that meant I would just you know you're you live once so you're gonna have fun and and I would go out to the clubs and to the bars and party and unfortunately I started doing drugs I was I'm from Chicago I moved to Louisville Kentucky at the time I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry so I was Doing, doing the worldly thing, trying to be successful in the world, but also have fun on the side. You know, work hard, play hard was my motto. Started partying and, and doing drugs, selling drugs, unfortunately, as well. And, and again, not all gays and lesbians do drugs. That's kind of a myth. I mean, some do, of course, some do not. But that definitely, unfortunately, is part of my story. And I got to be honest when I tell you my whole story, and, and that is a part of it, Unfortunately, started selling drugs. My parents didn't know the extent, but they, you know, they knew that I needed to know Christ, and so um, eventually, I was expelled from dental school. I then moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and at that time, I kept doing what I knew how to do best at that time, which was have fun and sell drugs, party. Uh, I, I actually also became a supplier to other dealers in over over a dozen states. My parents didn't know, again, the extent, but they knew that I needed to know Christ. They they knew that my biggest problem was not being in same-sex relationships or pursuing same-sex relationships, but my biggest need was to know and fully surrender to Christ. So they prayed for that miracle. My mother fasted every Monday for seven years. She once fasted 39 days on my behalf and... I mean, she prayed a bold prayer that God would do whatever it takes. That's how desperate she was. They came to visit me one time in Atlanta. I told them to leave after the second day. And they weren't, here's the interesting thing. They weren't telling me that I was living in sin. But just the fact that God had so radically transformed their lives that they radiated Christ, that was offensive to me. And I told them to get out and I didn't even give them an opportunity to call up their friends. My dad gave me his Bible before he left and I threw it in the trash. That's really how much I despise God's Bible. So my mom prayed for a miracle and that miracle came with a bang on my door and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police and two big German shepherd dogs. So I was seeing 10 years to life in federal prison. Uh, You know, thinking that I was invincible, and there I was, I was caught. I was walking around the cell block a few days after that and. Of all things, I passed by this garbage can, and on top of the trash, I found a Gideon's New Testament. Took it back to my cell, and I began reading it. And the Word of God began to convict me. Initially, it was not good news for me. I I was told that I was a sinner, that I rebelled not against God, not only against the government, but also my my parents. And so, I mean, I was it was just not good for me. Uh, So I thought things going to get worse. Well, it did. I was called to the nurse's office, and I got some really devastating news that I was HIV positive. So a few days after that, I was laying in my bed, looking up in the metal bunk above me, and there someone had scribbled something, and it read, If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And, you know, God could have used any verse from his word, but he chose that one to be up written on the cell above me to tell me that he still had a plan for me. Well, I didn't know what that plan was going to be. I, I wasn't. I didn't know, you know, this whole Christian thing was really new to me. And, and I, I don't even know at what point exactly I became a Christian. It was somewhere in that first year, like my mother, it was a clear night and day Saul to Paul con- conversation. For me, it was really, really gradual that over time, I think part of it is because I'm so hard-headed, God, I, I began just reading the word of God and came across some passages that, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion on this issue of sexuality, and I was pretty surprised when he told me that actually the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book even to explain that view. So I I took this book, you know, everything inside of me wanted to believe it. I took that book, I began reading it with that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. From a purely human perspective, perspective, I really had every reason in the world to accept what that book was claiming to justify the way I had been living. But it was God's indwelling Holy Spirit that convicted me that those assertions were a clear distortion of God his word, and his unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. So honestly, I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain. So I turned to the Bible alone, and I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of scripture looking for justification. You know, I, I wanted to find any type of a positive affirmation for a monogamous same sexual relationship. I wanted my cake and needed too. I mean, don't we all, we, we just, we want to be able to, you know, not have to change, not have to, uh, you know, surrender everything to Christ so that we can still have my flesh and still have God at the same time. And, and so I that, but I went through the whole Bible. I went to for several times And I couldn't find any. So that meant I was at a turning point. Either abandon God in his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, and this is important, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my sexual desires to control who I was and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was really clear and obvious, and I followed Jesus. The days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, and I realized that my sexuality does not have to be the core of who I am. That's really key because like everything about me before was I am gay. This is who I was, not just what I felt, or what were my desires, or what were my behaviors, and what I was doing, but this was who I was, and God was telling me, no, your identity is in Christ, and that was so foundational for me. I realized that my sexuality doesn't have to be in my sexuality. My, my identity doesn't have to be in my sexuality. As a matter of fact, my identity is not gay. It's not it's gay. It's not even straight or heterosexual for that matter, but my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy. And this is, you know, he says, be holy for I am holy. And I had thought before I became a Christian that if I was going to become a Christian, that I would have become a heterosexual as the world defines it, a heterosexual. That somehow the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attract opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation and put to death my sin nature every day. So heterosexuality is not the goal. It's too broad. Besides, God never says be heterosexual for I am heterosexual. <laughs> <laughs> but neither did God say be homosexual for I am homosexual. Rather, God said be holy or I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. And so God began to help me to see that change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. So as I began to live this life of holiness and surrender, God revealed His plan for my life, which was to be in full-time vocational ministry. And and when I had that change of heart, uh, I realized that that. You know, it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling would remain the same regardless of the location. And uh, so, with, with this change of heart, God actually did another miracle, and He shortened my sentence from six years, which is what I actually got, to actually three years, which is really unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible. <laughs> so I called up, collected my parents, and I told them I think God's calling me in ministry. And they and I asked them to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But that there was silence because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> um, oh, wow. They mailed the application to me and I realized I needed references. The only people I could find was a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another inmate to write my references to Moody. (laughs) So amazingly, Moody accepted me. I was released from prison in July 2001. um, I started the very next month. So think about the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? (laughs) I graduated from Moody 2005, went to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, and then got my doctorate in 2014, and then co-authored with my book, out of a far country, uh, this my mother and I wrote it together. It's it's our memoir, and that's when I introduced this concept of holy sexuality, and um, knew I needed to flesh that out. And I just did that with my newest book that came out in November twenty eighteen, uh, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel: Sex, Desire, Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. And so now I'm teaching at Moody, uh, and uh, but I do that essentially just part time because I'm not able to teach full time because uh, I'm. Most of the time, I I actually speak and travel full-time, and I just uh, teach at Moody part-time.
3: Man, what a powerful testimony. One of the things that sticks out, too, as you were talking to me, is that uh, actually you and Nerva have in common is, I I believe, Christopher, that you were, your parents came from uh, Taiwan. Is that correct? Mm -hmm, Yeah. And so you were born, you were kind of the first generation America. Uh, Nerva's parents were from uh, Haiti. Haiti, yeah and came to Chicago and she was born in New York, but raised in Chicago, South Side Chicago. Mm. And so, um, you know, it's just a cool little connection there, but you know, every culture kind of brings their own thing to the table that sometimes is a little bit different from American culture. And you mentioned that for your home, you didn't grow up in a Christian home and Nerva, I think you would say kind of similar that that you didn't Mm. grow up in a Christian home either. and one of the common narratives in our culture is that if you know if if you are gay your parents will not love you if they're christians right. you know they will they will be against you they in fact it might even be impossible for them to love you but in your case one of the things that sticks out is it was actually the opposite cuz you said they weren't believers right when you first told them about it yes, and that they exactly. kind of, Yeah can you can you maybe share a little bit more about that process and then maybe how you and your mom ended up writing a book together that's kind of wild
2: yeah, you're exactly right. Because that's, that's the narrative that we um, hear today, that Christian parents aren't able to love their gay children. Only atheist or non-Christian or non-conservative evangelical biblical Christians uh, cannot love. And, but if you're not that, then you can. But I had the exact opposite experience. My parents were not Christian. They rejected me. And it wasn't until they became Christian that they knew that they could do nothing other than to love me as God loved them mm. when they were powerless, while they were still sinners and while they were even his enemies. So that's, that's really the true example of Christian love. Uh, one that, that loves us a Romans five love, which is while we were powerless, while we were still sinners, while we were even God's enemies, that's true love. So that's, uh, that's exactly true. You know, the the narrative that we might hear is not the one that I experienced.
1: Such a uh, powerful testimony to the prayers that your mother prayed, you know, and to to mothers out there that might be walking through the same thing. It's just a, a strong reminder that prayers they don't fall to the ground. That God hears prayers. And you said that she was desperate, and she really went before the Lord, obviously on your behalf. And so I applaud you, especially in a culture as well that. Um, it's not as honoring to parents as I, I see that um, kind of waning away, but that yes. you chose to write this book with her and to, to partner yeah. in ministry and such an honoring thing to do to to just share that journey because she she played a huge part in um, your salvation. So I love that.
2: Yeah, God really restored. I, I would say at the end of our testimony when we because my parents and I we actually. So, this isn't really my ministry, but it's uh, our ministry. I love that. Uh, it's a family That's ministry. So, it's a two generational ministry. And so, we, most of what our ministry is, is we visit and travel to local churches and speak at local churches and equip and help people to have a, a, just this broader understanding of not just same sex attractions, but also sexuality, holy sexuality. But my parents and I, when we travel together, I always end it saying how God has given us back the years that the locusts had oh. taken how God has really restored our relationship, you know, where, you know, I was a good kid growing up and and I was, you know, kind of the behave, the kid that behaved. um, But I just, in my twenties, just went kind of just, I was really hard headed, really. I just did my own thing. wanted nothing to do with my parents. And Mm -hmm. uh, so lots of years were wasted, but God has really restored. So I praise the Lord. So it's not that my parents get to travel with me, but I have the honor to be able to travel oh, So
1: cool.
0: So in your book, uh, you have a part where you—you tell a lot of stories in the book, but you talk um, uh, about—I think it's a pastor or professor from a theological seminary, and his son came out as gay, and he reimagined the scriptures to kind of fit now kind of the lifestyle. And so what is your response— we see, you know, we talked about progressive Christianity on our show before. What is your response mm. to that whole movement that is trying to reinterpret scriptures and parts of the New Testament and explain it away as either well, they didn't have consensual consensual homosexual relationships and all that kind of stuff?
2: Overall, I think it comes down to this: people who are these revisionists, uh, you know, uh, the, the gay activists who are trying to assimilate. Uh, same-sex relationship as, as being permissible in the Christian life, uh, the biggest mistake that they're making is that they're not reading the Bible canonically. Of course, they know that they need to do their best to to, to read the Bible in context. But here's here's another problem when it comes to context. There is right context and there's wrong context. Hmm. And you need to be very, very uh, familiar with. There's a lot of context that you can use. I mean, if we're just going to narrow it down to the first century, um, I could be using uh, the Greco-Roman context. I could be using Jewish context. I could be using, I mean, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in the first century. I could be looking at what's what's going on, you know, in other parts, you know, in in what they would call Asia, what we call kind of Asia Minor now in Turkey, uh, that context but there's a right context and a and a and a wrong context, and also there's a context that is more emphasized and one that is less emphasized. Because of course, you know, you have both the the Greco-Roman context, the Jewish context. So, for example, I, I've often he- heard it. As a matter of fact, the New York Hillsong pastor Carl Lentz Carl Lentz made a comment that. Uh, Jesus never really said, said, said much on homosexuality, so neither w- would I. He, and then his argument was uh, it was very common in the Greco-Roman world, homosexuality, and the fact that he was silent on it. Uh, I mean, if he wanted to address it, he would have. The problem he's, he's correct that it was very prevalent in first century in the Greco-Roman world. So he has that correct, but he's using the wrong context. Why? Because mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, he came first for the Jew and therefore wow. in first century israel it's not first century israel was starkly different than first century rome and first century greece so for Karl Lenz to 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 that's a, a prime 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 example of misusing context yeah, that you yeah. might have the correct time but it's the wrong context mm. that that's one big mistake that they're doing but i would say the overall bigger mistake is that revisionists, they are not reading the Bible canonically. What I mean by canonically? That, that means more than context, because, of course, context can mean literary context, but also historical context. But canonically means that uh, we are reading the Bible in light of all 66 books of the Bible. The canon are the 66 books inspired by God. So that's 39 in the old, 27 in the, in the new. So when I'm reading something out of Leviticus, I'm reading that in light of Genesis. I'm reading in light of Isaiah. I'm reading in light of Micah. I'm reading in light of you know Hezekiah, you know, or, you know, or you know H- H- Habakkuk, or, or or the Gospels, or Book of Romans, or you know. So all of these uh, you know inspired books written by inspired prophets and, and apostles uh and 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 the men that that god used to record his word they all are on one accord it's one unified witness why because they're not written just by a bunch of different human authors but they're also written by the holy spirit so that is what ties them together and when we do that that narrows the scope for the possibility for interpretations because it's, it's, it is, we do have to admit, when you look at any particular verse, there are various different types of interpretations, but how are we to narrow them down objectively? We do that by allowing scripture to interpret scripture because when you read things canonically, you, will, you, you must catch where a biblical writer might quote a previous author or uh, might also uh, allude back to a previous written text. Might not quote an entire verse, but will allude by pulling a couple verse, a couple words, or maybe three or four, or maybe even eight words, uh, like in like in Romans one that Paul was referring, alluding back to Genesis one, or like in First Corinthians six and 1 Timothy one, where Paul creates a compound word which. Is created from two words that allude back to Leviticus 2013. So mm-hmm. when you read that in, in light, of, you know, reading canonically and catching these intertextual allusions, um, that will avoid from you know going and reading things in, incorrectly. I, as I often say, reading the Bible canonically puts guardrails on your interpretation. Mm-hmm.
0: That's
3: good. That's so good. And I think what you're uh, pointing out would be good for our listeners, too, just to remember the importance of careful biblical exegesis and yes. understanding these hermeneutical tools that we don't sometimes get in church, but we need to maybe do a better job of um, of teaching. And when you do read it canonically, one of the things I love about your, your book, Holy Sexuality, is you point out... What becomes clear is the narrative, the Christian narrative of creation, fall, mm-hmm. redemption, and consummation. And mm-hmm. you tie that to how we need that 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 becomes kind of an interpretive framework to understand holy sexuality. Can you talk a little bit about that deep narrative, how that how that speaks to this question?
2: Sure. You know, I I actually was, um, you know. So the title of my book, "Holy Sexuality in the Gospel," uh, the subtitle, "Sex, Design, Relationship Shaped by God's Grand Story." Initially, I wanted to title the book, the subtitle, "Sex, Design, Relationship Shaped by Biblical and Systematic Theology," but my. <laughs> I don't That's know great. why. I mean I told them I was like they said, you know, you know you might be able to sell and I was like, I'll buy it. They're like, Yeah, but you're unusual. I was like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> so great. They you know, because the it's it's so sad, but theology has a stigma around it. Mm. Well, I'm not a theologian. That's what Christians will say. I, I'm not a theologian. Um, you know, I leave that, you know, to people in the cemetery. I mean seminary. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're fine. You're fine. so you, you get a lot of people that have really a bad taste of theology, and I, unfortunately, that's because there's a lot of bad theology and bad theologians. Because wow. people say, "Well, I, you know, I just I, I want to be practical. I, don't, you know, theology is impractical." That's actually the opposite. I had an amazing theology professor my first year at Moody, and he told us bad theology leads to apathy. Good mm-hmm. theology, like a robust understanding about the character of God, who's so. Other than us, who's so awesome and incredible and glorious and holy and amazing and powerful and all-knowing, that that glimpse of that type of uh, phenomenal God is going to just drive you out of your seat. You can't do. Any, I mean, if you sit on your hands, that really is bad theology. Good theology compels you into action. So, my hope was to really, because I saw that missing. I, I saw a lot of good books that we're addressing this biblical text, which we kind of alluded to a little bit earlier about, you know, the hermeneutics part. And those are really good, important, necessary books. But we can't build Christian life simply upon God's no. So we needed to see God's yes, through the broad, you know, the breadth of scripture. Um, and so what is, what's the theology of sexuality? And I had not seen yet a book on that. I, I saw other books that were kind of pragmatic in nature, but they were missing some real theological depth. And so uh, this middle part I thought was missing. And so that's why I wanted to write this book. So we re- retitled the subtitle, uh, Sex Desire Relationship Shaped by God's Grand Story, which would be creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. God's grand redemptive arc in scripture and how that actually better shapes and understands, uh, helps us to understand uh, human sexuality. That's
0: good. Later in your book, you talk about the outreach aspect, and I work at a large church, and you know, I think mm. those of us who are encountering the LGBT movements and those in that culture struggle yeah. to know what words to use, how to talk to both Christians seeking answers and non-Christians who are on the opposite side of the, of the debate. So mm. can you talk a little bit more about, you know, you say don't use the words like lifestyle or choice and those kinds of distinctions. So can you kind of guide us, how should we talk about these things as Christians to our friends and family?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's it's important for us to, to realize that words matter, um, which is part of the reason why, as a Christian, so, you know, we need to realize there's words that as Christians I wouldn't use, um, uh, particularly when I'm talking to Christians, because when I talk to unbelievers, uh, that might be different. I might be using their terminology uh, to be able to at least communicate with them, because we—, we we you know, in essence, we did we have a different language. Uh, we, we use different words. Um, and I think recognizing that is is really helpful. Like, for example, um, you know the, the term "gay," um, though on the surface means an, a person who has attractions toward the same sex. But it's naive to think that words are created in a vacuum and on, are only one dimensional. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're two dimensional, three dimensional, four. There, there are many uh, layers that are complex and are baggage. Um, and one of the aspects of gay that I resist and reject is that uh, it it gives the impression that sexual orientation is an ontological category. In other words, that mm-hmm. being gay means who I am. You know, and I talked about that earlier in my wow. testimony. So I. I reject that, and uh, and so therefore I'm I'm very careful not to use the term gay when describing myself. I can say someone identifies as gay, that's, but first Christians, and that's why I really struggle when someone says I'm gay and I'm Christian. Um, it's 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 uh, I think it's an ignorance or a naivete to think that um, they only mean that they have same sex attraction. Some and and people, some people who use that term realize that that's why they realize that they have to add another adjective to it. So they would say, I'm a gay celibate Christian, which for me says, if you have to keep adding on adjectives to keep clarifying the adjective, maybe you should just get rid of that adjective. So I just use Mm -hmm. Christian, um, as who I am. If you know Christ, you know that when I say I'm a Christian, that also means that I know I'm a sinner. Um, what type of particular sin, uh, you know, if you're willing to listen, I'll be, I'll be willing to tell you, you know, what, what it is that I might be struggling with, but I don't have to tell everyone. And I don't think that is necessary to put that on my forehead, that that is who I am. So I think that's important. But when you're engaging with those in the gay community, we, I I think, I think it does need to switch. And for this reason, not because I'm buying into their worldview or their terminology or their categories, but it's for the sake of ultimately the end goal is that I want to win them to Christ, um and, and this is where there's a lot of kind of different approaches today that that focus upon um how to uh win people to Christ um uh, you know i'm sorry how to just love not win people to Christ but just to love how to have a pa- posture change um you know how to uh really uh, and, and there's quite a few people that that Um, I think a lot of other things that they got right, but their, their approach is simply just looking like, oh, we just need to love and, and the church and it beats up the church saying, we got it wrong. We're hurting them. We're causing these kids to commit suicide, et cetera, Hmm. which, which the research is not, has not proven yet that simply holding to, uh, biblical sexuality is causing kids to commit suicide. Uh, but a lot of Christian You know, groups are saying that today. Um, And uh, but so their real approach is that we need to love. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is love becomes an end, not a means. Mm. So that and also how do you define love? And love is simply, well, just show compassion and show grace uh, devoid of truth, because I, I don't believe you can really love apart from truth, especially in 1 Corinthians 13, which says that love rejoices in truth so um we the end goal is certainly we love but that's a means to an end which is to uh to share christ to bring people to christ and that uh that they would fully surrender to christ so that there would be life transformation and um so you know with that end goal i'm willing to not use a word or two for the sake of winning people to christ so for example you mentioned you know don't use the word lifestyle or choice why i mean first of all i, I know why christians use that because we view uh sexuality more as a behavior a sinful behavior which it is but that's also one-dimensional because sexuality also includes uh, temptations and desires now, same-sex sexual desires are sinful, but temptations aren't. Jesus Christ was tempted in every way, but was without sin. Um, so, uh, temptations are not sinful, but it can definitely lead to sin. Um, and so, when a, when we use the word lifestyle or choice, it actually can be offensive to someone in the gay community because. The, I, I never used those words when I lived as a gay man, this, because this was who I was. The, sexuality was not something I did, was not a lifestyle, was not my choice, but it definitely was who I was. Okay. So again, I'm willing to not use a word or two for the sake of winning people to Christ.
3: Hmm. So as far as um kind of practical outreach when, when you're connecting with people outside of the body... Mm-hmm. What are some steps you would recommend? I mean, I know there's no like one size fits all formula, but is it, in order to love them well, is, are there some general tips you would give? Yeah, and, and in particular, like if you come into contact with a coworker or something that identifies as as gay, and they say, you know, Christians, you you hate us, so I don't even want to hear about your faith. Is there a way to kind of navigate those discussions?
2: We we first need to not be so defensive in the sense that we need to recognize that, um, you know, on our own, without necessarily telling them, but recognize that uh, there is justification for those in the gay community feel that we hate them. Because all we've done in the church is tell them that their sinners that are going to hell. But we really have not communicated well that beauty of the gospel. So I think we, we need to recognize that. And, and just work on, you know, kind of what I would call some pre-evangelism and, and focus upon uh, getting to know them and focusing on, you know, showing them that we're just not a You know, not that abnormal people, and (laughs) and go out of our way to show compassion to them, and that sometimes means just being a listener, uh, asking them for their well being. You know, tell me more about you. Tell me more about what your interests. Tell me more about your partner. I mean, uh, listening does not mean that you are approving. That's important. Listening can be really powerful to hear them talk about them coming out or their partner, uh, you know, or how they got married. Listening does not mean you're approving. Of course, what we say uh, can can affirm, you know, in a wrong way. So, for example, if they're talking about their partner, if we say I'm happy for you, which would be a, a kind of a natural response, uh, I'm happy for you. Well, that's that's obviously a, a statement of affirmation. Mm. Okay. Um, I-, I tell people, instead of saying, I'm happy for you, you could say, oh, I see he makes you happy. I see you're happy. See, that's different. That's different from saying I- that I- I'm happy for you and saying, oh, I see you're happy or I see that, you know, he makes you happy. If you repeat their experience, um, you know, I see he means a lot to you. That That is not uh, necessarily saying that I affirm it. It-, it. This is kind of a practice from, you know, good pastoral counseling. Yeah, Repeating, you're not making uh, an actual judgment call you're actually just repeating but but by doing that you're repeating their experience but by doing that you're affirming that person's experience not necessarily agreeing with it, but affirming the individual that then helps you to continue the conversation and continue the conf- uh, friendship and, and even go deeper. Uh, so I think those are really important things uh, that because you want if you want people to listen to you, We must listen to them first.
3: Yeah, that's super helpful. Do you have any suggestions for when we get into those conversations and it does take a turn toward worldview and where, you know, someone they so identify is their sexuality being who they are, not how they are. Um, How do you help kind of deconstruct that and maybe help them to come to see things in a more biblical way?
2: You know, when we're engaging with our friends in the gay community, it, maybe it's, I think initially, it's less about convincing them of the biblical worldview, and that might sound so radical and, and so you know out there, but I think it's more first building trust, building friendship, building relationship, that then provides the context in which to have those later conversations. I'm not avoiding them, but I know that something needs to come first, especially with my friends because they already have this misunderstanding that Christians hate them. So I need to. I, I'm going upstream, and so there needs there needs to be. There's a lot of back work that to be done first. In, in essence, I think about it as uh, you know the good soil and the bad soil parable. Um, there's a lot of bad soil out there, and part of that is, is some of it is, is our is our own fault. Uh, we thrown rocks, uh, we thrown weeds, and 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 we haven't watered those the soil. Uh, you know, in the gay community, and so it's hard. It's very hard, mm-hmm. and it needs some time to. Uh, Pull out those rocks and pull out those weeds and prepare that soul to receive the seed, which is the gospel. So that takes time. Um, but before you even share the, the Christian worldview, and this is where it's hard because I know our gay friends, they know we're Christian, and then they're going to press us and ask, well, what do you think? I know you think this is sin. Yeah, I know you think I'm going to hell. Um, it, you know, Depending on the situation, if you're first just initially getting to know them and they're trying to push it, it's okay to deflect. Jesus Christ did not answer every question. Uh, he sometimes answered a question with a question. He sometimes was silent. So deflecting is okay. I think it's okay to say, you know, I'm just getting to know you. I would love to get to know you more, uh, and and uh, and and I, I'd like to emphasize on that and tolerate our, our differences and celebrate our similarities if we, if we can do that. And so it's okay to deflect that. Or if it's some, if you've gotten to know them a little bit better, you could even say. Um, you know, I know you don't even believe in God, so actually, why does it matter to you what God thinks? So, actually, <laughs> let's first talk about the existence of God. That's much more important first. I would much prefer talking about God and his son Jesus before we talk about morality, because morality is not going to save. Mm-hmm. Even if I convinced an unbeliever that same sex relations are sinful, they're still lost. So, I must first talk about God. And his son jesus but that also means having these conversations is, is is difficult so you know you know since you both of you uh you know are familiar uh with apologetics um you know that there's there's different approaches there's classical there's you know um evidential uh there's you know these different approaches and there's an approach that that, that i found really interesting and it's called the presuppositional approach And that uh, recognizes that as much as we can give reason and logic um, and evidences to an unbeliever, uh, we can give the best reasons. uh, But if their heart is in the right place, and actually it's in most situations, uh, they still don't believe. So it's not reasons or logic or evidences that draw people to Christ. It's God. So I think everyone would fit to that. So does that then mean we do nothing? Absolutely not. Uh, God uses us. But I think uh, what has been helpful for me is this approach, the presuppositional approach, which is less about defending our view and giving evidences for our view to prove our view is right, but it's actually in very subtle conversational ways of asking questions to reveal that their worldview is actually faulty. Because the presuppositional approach is is this, that everyone begins with the presupposition. In other words, my presupposition, and I I admit that, my presupposition is that there is a God. An unbeliever's presupposition is what? There is no God, right? So, you know, I can give them all these evidence about the resurrection, and if their presupposition is there is no God and also there are no miracles— then any evidence that I give them is just gonna fall off their back, like water off a duck's back. I, mm-hmm. I don't believe it, you know, they're gonna say it's an anomaly or they're gonna give some reason. So it's really the presupposition that is the guiding power. But if I recognize, first, you know, of course this takes, we need to recognize things and listen, be a good listener to listen to what is the worldview. Once we recognize that, we can start pointing out the inconsistencies of their worldview. I know that God is true and his word is truth and that all other worldviews are inconsistent. And it's, in essence, our job to help others dis to see that, to show how their worldview is inconsistent because n- no one cannot have any worldview. Everyone has a worldview. But when you begin showing the inconsistency of the worldview that they thought was on solid rock, but actually it's quicksand, begin scrambling and start looking for I need to have a new worldview. That is and, and when they're open to that and, and when you see God do be really in the beginning working their lives, then you have this open begin speaking in and say, well let me tell you my worldview and the consistency of that. Uh, so I think that's, that's what kind of my approach would be with someone who kind of identifies with that. It's, it is asking questions. You know, their worldview, one of the presuppositions is this is who I am. Uh, you know, we don't have evidence for that. That's, that's just a presupposition that sexuality is who we are. And so asking questions, you know, like, you know, tell me more about who you are, you know, what what do you do, what do you do? And tell me more, you know, when you say gay, you know, I know what that means, but tell me more what you mean by that. Why is it then that you say sexuality is who you are if sexuality is, you know, actually what your desires are or even the uh, relationship that you have and uh, your strong hope for intimacy, you know, as strong as a desire might be, that should still never be who we are. So I think it's it's subtly having these. It's it's all through conversation. I think uh, apologetics uh, and evangelism go hand in hand, and I think those are always best done in the context of conversation. So
1: helpful, Christopher. As you've uh, gone out over the past few years to to help equip the church, do you are you encouraged by what you see? Are we growing in knowledge and understanding and how to reflect Christ to this community? Yeah. Or like, because I feel like in the past we've held this sin as the highest sin, and yeah. and that's probably why they felt so separated from us or feel like they can't step in church and feel loved and accepted. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, okay. So I, I speak both, um, you know, because I'm Chinese. So I I speak in Chinese churches and, um, and I would say, and my guess is Asian American churches and probably uh, Latin American churches and, and probably African American black churches are, are probably similar in that we may be very conservative in our theology we don't talk about sin much and we, and we don't talk about sexual sex and sexual That's sin. Right. It's, yeah. it's just not talked about, but it's going on. So, and, and so it's, it, it's these types of churches that have historically treated same sex sin as particularly one of the worst sins. Mm. Um, so I am encouraged to see that it's less of this. Now I, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to admit I'm I'm naturally more of a pessimist.
1: Gotcha. <laughs> so, you might um, have a witness here in this
2: room. <laughs> oh man! That's so, uh, but, but you know, my my dad always says you're such a pessimist. I was like, no, I'm a realist.
1: Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yes. That's what
2: Seth says. Here's the thing: I'm I'm both encouraged and discouraged in, in a sense. I mean, I'm I'm encouraged to see that there's less. People are realizing this is not the worst sin, especially churches that invite me, I think are getting it. So I'm really encouraged by that. I am a little bit discouraged because I I see where this lie of that sexuality is who you are Mm. is so entrenched now in our church, especially Mm. among our youth and young adults. Mm. So kind of this gay, celibate Christian movement, I think, you know, there's a lot of things that they're doing right, but then there's stuff that is just not right, you know, so... You know, having 80% right, you know, false teaching always is grounded in some truth. Jesus was tempted by Satan for 40 days by the word of God. So we always need to be very, very careful. Just really deceptive false truth can be 95% truth. It's that 5% truth that'll send, you know, separate you from God. So I think we need to be very careful because uh, kind of the the gay celibate Christian movement uh, is getting it right. Yes, the churches are, we have to do a better job. Um, We have really uh, demonized and stigmatized individuals who are wrestling with same-sex attraction. But the problem, I think, with uh, kind of the gay celibate Christian movement or the spiritual friendship or the revoice movement is um, a few things. Uh, First, it's celebrating what they call spiritual friendship. Mm. Again, on the surface, sounds good. It sounds helpful. We need to be have be better friends for each other, especially for individuals who are single, especially for individuals who have same sex attractions. But when we begin calling it a spiritual or a covenanted friendship, it basically becomes marriage without the sex. Mm. So these are, you know, they're actually encouraging that like two men can begin living each other. They actually make a covenant together to to be friends for life, like best best friends for life. Uh, but that, but not having sex, the problem is not just same sex sexual behavior, but it's also same sex romantic behavior, which I talk about in my mm-hmm. book, and I sort of differentiate that those might be d- different, but they're both sinful in God's eyes. Uh, and I think that stems from this misunderstanding that that this aspect of same sex sexual orientation, can actually be sanctified. So there's actually good that com- can come out of it. And and where they get this is they believe that same-sex friendships uh, are good, which I will agree, as long as it doesn't get into the romantic aspect or kind of got covenanted, what they call a covenant friendship. For me, I don't call that a friendship anymore. I call that basically marriage without sex.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Same-sex platonic behavior, same-sex platonic friendships – are good, but we cannot conflate that with sexuality. In other words, people within that would would say that they because they have same sex attractions, they are now relationship geniuses. In other words, they are better at making same sex friends than other men who don't have same sex relationships. And I completely outright deny that I think that's I think that's kind of silly. I don't think that I'm somehow better at making guy friends than you know, maybe Seth, you are or whoever who has opposite sex attractions simply because you don't have same sex desires. Mm -hmm. And to make same sex platonic desires or same sex platonic friendship a part of sexuality would be blurring the lines of sexual orientation so much so that everyone would be gay, bi and straight. In other words, my mom, because she wants to be You know, she has these desires to deepen her you know friendship with her friend from you know her best mentor or whatever. Who's a woman does not make her lesbian. That's why that's where I can get a little bit discouraged. But again, I actually am really encouraged to see churches addressing this. Um, I'm really encouraged to see other people speaking on this that I view very highly that are doing it not just biblically but theologically and gospel centered. Other people that I would highly suggest uh, speak speakers and authors on this. Rosaria Butterfield is one. Sam Albury is another one, and uh, and also Jackie Hill Perry. Um, I think their their voices are really key in this conversation. They get it right, not confusing that orientation is somehow a new ontological category.
1: If a person is um, has same sex attraction but desires yes. to marry,
2: mm. how do you advise? Marry a biblical marriage with someone of the opposite sex, correct yes, oftentimes when I get this, you know, I teach at Moody, and so I get students who have same sex attractions, and oftentimes that's a question I want to marry, I want to marry someone, yeah. uh, get married to someone of the opposite sex, have family, have children, et cetera. My first thing is usually that's great marriage is is a blessing it's it's something that 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 is that is good, but let's put that on the on the back burner for right now it and, and actually I would say this for even if a man came to me, he doesn't have same-sex attraction. That's
1: good. Okay.
2: And my reason is because that doesn't mean that they're not open to it. I'm just saying don't make that your main focus. That's that's my main point. Because I, I see too too often where people make that like their sole goal. Ah, in, I see. And they be, can, become consumed by this. I mean… You should see these freshman girls come on campus. I mean, (laughs) it's it's crazy. And the guys, you know, I mean, so it's, I think we need to be, if we truly believe in the sanctity of marriage, in other words, the holiness of marriage, the goodness of marriage, we should never trivialize it. Oh, that's so good. And I think when we trivialize it, it's, we can do that by over sentimentalizing dating and marriage. Uh, We, if we really view this as a a, an extremely solemn, serious, beautiful blessing from God, we also need to take it seriously. So I'm, I very rarely, how do I say it? um, Push people, or I I don't know how to say. I mean, sometimes, uh, of course, I don't want to not say that I don't encourage. What I sometimes see is when uh, – I'll give you this example. Like I, I love telling stories because I think sometimes stories are the best way Actually, to d- make it. my point. <laughs> so I was at church uh, one day, and um, and the funny thing is my parents and I are traveling almost all the time. or maybe at our home church maybe three times a year. <laughs> so I was at our home church, and my parents and I were kind of front row people because we like to be right there in the, like, the splash pit. <laughs> so we like to be right there in the action. Um, and so we got there early, and, uh, you know, people are – coming in and we hear maybe a few rows behind a young man I think uh was telling some of his friends and some of maybe the older ladies in the church you know that he had just met someone and they were really excited they're like oh my goodness I'm so happy for you you know congratulations what's your name they're so happy congratulations and I'm thinking congratulations he didn't do anything like he just (laughs) right (laughs) if he got a job maybe congratulations like if you know (laughs) (laughs) I get it that's funny Congratulations. Praise the Lord. You know, but he, you, know, you just simply met someone, you know, congratulations. I mean, I see if it was me, you know, I, I would say, great. Does she know Christ?
1: Come on now.
2: You know, it's like, how deep is her faith? Like, I think we should actually be a bit more critical. I heard the best thing from a pastor. He said, this is my goal in marriage counseling. My goal is to convince them not to get married. Hmm. <laughs> they to convince me why uh, it is God's will. Not why they want to get married, well, but good. why it's the will of God for them to marry. I almost never hear that. And unfortunately, I think because we devalue the sanctity of marriage, because we uh, trivialize marriage, we push people into getting married. Mm. And that might be why there's so many divorces among Christians. Wow. That some people may not really be married. And here's an interesting thing. I would I always tell people this. Just because you have a godly woman and a godly man does not necessarily mean that it's God's will for them to be together. Well, Sometimes we get this a lot. And they're like, oh, man, you know, two people, they're in church. You know, this single guy, this single woman, they're they are both love Jesus. You know, why not? Then get together. But what if it's not just because two people might be Christian and godly does not necessarily mean that it is the will of God hmm. for them. Together. And so I think once we once we elevate marriage in that way, not diminishing the value, I'm not discouraging people not to get married, but let's really take it seriously. I mean, Ephesians 5, husbands, Ephesians 5.25, husbands, lay your life down for your wives. That's, that's a costly, costly, you know, calling to do. And, and I want my men that I'm discipling to take that seriously that this is what you're called to do. Lay your life down for your spouse, for your, for your wife. Do that seriously. So if there's a young man who wants to marry, he has same such attractions, he wants to marry someone, a, a woman, I would say, great. Praise the Lord. I'm, I'm glad you have that desire, but don't make that your only desire. Don't make that your God. Don't make that your idol. Mm-hmm. But let's pull that on the, on the back burner, and this is what I want to focus on with you. I want to disciple and mentor you and make you more into a man of God because I think the best way, and this is where sometimes we get it wrong. You know, when you have a young man or young lady who wants to marry, we're like, great. Well, let me like help you to be a better wife or better, you know, or or help you to be, you know, I don't know. I'm like, there's all these single books on how to date better or how to make yourself more attractive. I just I feel like it's missing the mark because the way that I prepare the young man that I might disciple, and I, I'm not able to do that as often anymore because I'm so busy. The way I prepare them to marry is to help them to be more like Christ, on. because once they become more like Christ, they're more prepared to be a more godly single man or a godly married man. And and there's something that I love, and this is kind of like the motto for my life. You know, I'm 48 years old. I'm I'm getting older, but I'm open to getting married. Uh, you know, if again, if this is God's will. But I read this statement, and I, and I have yet to find out who wrote this, but it was by a, a missionary. She was a woman. She was a missionary all her life, all her adult life, and she was single all, all her adult life. And she kind of get tired after a while. People ask, oh, don't you want to get married? Because obviously the answer is yes, of course. I've just never found, you know, God has not provided that person for me yet. But she came up with this amazing answer, and it was this. She said, I want my life to be so hid in Christ that for a man to find me, he must find Christ first.
1: Hmm. So good.
2: So that's become my, the motto of my life. I want my life to be so hid in Christ, that for a woman to find me, she must find Christ first.
3: Hmm. Preach well, you're Talking about
0: husbands uh, laying their lives down for their wives, you done gone to meddling. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of the website Church Clarity. Mm. But it is a uh, initiative of, from the LGBT Christian community mm-hmm. to create a database of churches.
2: Yes.
0: So you, you've seen the site and you, you know what they're doing?
2: Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with uh, 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 like a list of churches that are open and affirming.
0: Right, well, and both and. And so they want to basically hopefully have every church in America listed on their site, both affirming and non-affirming. Yeah. Because their mission statement is, you know, if you're LGBT, you should no going into it. And their reasoning is that most churches and pastors are not extremely upfront with whether or not they are affirming or not. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it goes back to not sure how to talk about it in a, especially a large church context that where you're thousands of people in the doors every weekend. So my question to you is how clear, how upfront, how forward should churches be? Should pastors be on the stance of the church on the LGBT issue asking that because trying to ride the line of we want people to come in the doors and find Christ but we also don't want to feel like we're baiting and switching people uh, who are coming in the doors either
2: yeah so uh, you know I think that there there needs to be clarity but it all has to do with how it is communicated and the tone Mm -hmm. I think that's everything Uh, communication is not simply words But it is how we say something right and it is the context in which we say something you know if you're saying gays are going to hell not good yeah i mean and and also it's it's a partial truth Hmm. you know because because the real truth is y'all are going to hell like everyone (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry it is only by christ who loved us so much who gave himself for us who saved mm. us. Wow. So don't just call out one group without calling everyone else, because if you are, then you're a Pharisee. And uh, this is what I loved about, you know, D.L. Moody, Dwight Lyman Moody is the founder of our school and, and he fought and fought and he refused to put his name on the school. And so once he died, then we did. <laughs> wow. okay. He was an amazing evangelist at the turn of the century, from the 18th to 19th century, between the 18th and 19th century. Um, so he lived like, you know, during the, when the Chicago fire, you know, ravaged the city and kind of burnt down almost the whole city. About the late 1800s, I think that was like 1880, something around there. I don't remember exactly when, but that's when he lived. He was a simple, I mean, I'm talking about simple. Like he did not graduate high school. He, he was very uneducated. Like he could not, <laughs> it was just people laughed at how bad his english was but god still used him but there's something that people said about deel moody and it was that he was the only person that could talk about hell and the reason he said they said was because he did it with tears
0: mm-hmm.
2: are we preaching if we preach about judgment first of all are we are we are we doing what the bible says romans 2 and 3 which which romans 1 2 and 3 which really lays it out and says everyone Everyone deserves the wrath of God, but mm-hmm. then going to Romans five, which is, but this is the God. This is how God loves us by sending His Son while we were powerless, powerless, while we were still sinners. Which is, I love that word "still" because that's really important. He wasn't. He didn't save us when we were beginning to choose God or when we were like when we start ch- turning to God. No, when we were still sinners, we were mm-hmm. in our mm-hmm. sin. Hmm. And even further than that, while we were his enemies, like that just blows my mind. And so are we preaching that and talking about that and and talking about uh, a loving God? So I do think there needs to be clarity. I think it should even be, I think even on our website and, and here, I don't think that we need to say homosexuality is sin. I do think we need to say, again, this goes to my book. Talk more about what is God's yes than saying God's no, because if you say God's yes, then you don't have to say God's no. When you say, you know, that sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the context of a husband and wife in marriage, boom, like that covers everything that covers adultery is sin, that covers sex before marriage is sin, that covers homosexuality, that covers all, you know, all these things you don't have to say God's no, you just say God's yes and that covers that. But when we talk about, you know, sexuality, we need to be doing a context of sexual brokenness in general, that we're calling everyone out. Everyone is dealing with sexual brokenness, hmm. not just this. This is not the worst of sins. And also when we preach on marriage. So as you guys, you know, saw my book, I have, you know, a chapter on what identity chapter on the ma- ma- day, chapter on like, you know, all these different things. But I have two chapters on marriage and two chapters on singleness. Actually, that's at the heart of my book. And those four chapters are the biggest chapters in my book. Actually, the singleness ones are the biggest chapters of my book. So when we preach on marriage, which many, many churches do, I almost never hear them preach on singleness. Mm We have, and even throughout the year, many, many, many examples and illustrations of marriage, especially since most pastors are married, that's fine, because the best illustrations come from your own personal experience. But I almost never hear an example about, uh, you know, godly single women and men. Why? You know, and and why don't we have an entire sermon on singleness when almost 50% of American adults today are single, not married? Uh, So we're really missing a demographic. So I think those are ways that can, that can, that we should communicate about sexuality, about godly view of marriage, godly view of singleness. uh, But also, when we talk about this sin, that we're talking in light of all the other sins that we're not elevating this greater than the others.
3: Uh, thank you so much, Chris, for this has thank been so helpful, you. man. And we so just will continue to pray for your ministry. I know it's very timely right now. And uh, just pray that God continues to open doors for the impact you're already making, man. We appreciate everything you do. And we have personally benefited from it. And we hope our listeners will uh, check out both of your books and watch your stuff on YouTube as well. And, and I know they will benefit
0: alongside of us. So thank you so much.
2: Oh, you're Welcome. Welcome.
0: We hope you enjoyed this interview with Christopher Yuan. Encourage you, the links to his book, his website, will all be in show notes. Again, the book we really talked about today was Holy Sexuality and the Gospel by Christopher Yuan. And we encourage you, you can interact with us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. On Instagram and Twitter, it's at FreemindFM. On Facebook, it's FM. And you can check us out on Patreon. If you go to Patreon.com slash FreemindFM, any donation to the Patreon will get you access to all of our bonus episodes. We had a Q&A with Nancy Piercy. We have many parts with the Mountain Prophet, that interview. It's a awesome content. And you get access to all of that immediately with any donation to Patreon. So patreon.com slash freemindfm. And thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.